last week, we celebrated Easter as a church and the fact that Jesus rose from the grave and, and showed us that death does not have the final say for those of us who have placed their hope in Jesus. And so the book of Acts picks up where those events end. At the beginning of Acts chapter 1, we see that after Jesus rose from the dead, he spent 40 days going around and telling people about the kingdom of God and and giving them hope for the resurrection and encouraging them and giving them a mission and a a call for what was next for them as, as, as people who had been following him. And so the book of Acts picks up there in chapter 1, and what it does over the course of the 28 chapters that we spend in Acts is the book of Acts details how for 30 years after Easter, the people of God who had seen and experienced Jesus, who saw him die, who saw him rise again, began to go and live their lives on purposeful mission so that the world would know the hope that we have in Jesus that we celebrated last week at Easter. So that's, that's the book of Acts in a nutshell. It is men and women pouring their lives out for the message of Jesus that we celebrated this past week. And so as we come into Acts chapter 22 today, what we're going to see is that Paul, who's one of the men who was part of the, the people who were going out and proclaiming, he's on trial for the message that he is sharing about Jesus. And what I want to focus in on today as, as we look at this chapter is, is how this chapter helps us understand how to handle conflict well. The reason I want to do that is because Paul here is on trial for his faith, facing potential execution. Now, I don't know about you, but I just don't see that happening to any of us anytime soon, right? So, What I do think will matter for us and and, and what we can see from the text this morning is that there are situations in our life where our words and our responses matter and the consequences of not handling those words and responses well has significant impact upon our lives and the lives of others, especially when things get tense. And so this chapter gives us a really good opportunity to dive into that dynamic. So before we do that this morning, I want to do a little exercise. If you're sitting next to your, uh, your spouse or your significant other, I want you to go ahead, ladies first, I want you to just take your elbow, I want you to line it up real good with the side of your spouse, and I want you to give it a little jab, just like that this morning. Can you all do that for me? All right, there we go, a little bit of movement. Husbands, all right, it's your turn to look at your wife and say, I love you, and this applies more to me than it does to you. All right, so you're already, if you do that, okay, if you participated in that little exercise, guys, you're already plus five for the day, you're welcome, okay? And if you're keeping score and plus five matters in your family, then this message is for you, okay? So, look, the simple fact is everybody has conflict, right? There's conflict between husbands and wives, there's conflict between boyfriends and girlfriends, parents and and children, siblings, coworkers, conservatives and liberals, sports fans neighbors, in-laws, you name it, everybody has conflict. I mean, look, I don't care if you're a recluse and you live at home and you have 20 cats. I'm sure there's one cat that you really want to punt into the neighbor's backyard. Okay? Everybody has conflict. So no matter what you have done in the past, as you go through life, it should be patently obvious to you and to me. There's nothing that we can do to avoid conflict. But No matter what we've done, we can learn how to handle it better. So a quick caveat before we jump in. Here's here's really the challenge for me and and for all of us today, uh, and it's this. If you asked my wife 
if I handled conflict well, she would probably laugh in your face. Now, that's not because I don't know how to handle conflict well. It's because for every one that I do really well, there's probably three or four that I just completely blow. Now, my issues, I'm sure none of these relate to you, you know, are like I get defensive or I get angry or I withdraw or I shift blame or I avoid the issue or I get snarky or some other kind of childish issue, right? Again, my problems, not yours. I'm sure you can't relate to that. Pray for me. I need your help, okay? So those, those are the reality, right? The challenge is the situations and the relationships that I should do the best in are usually the ones that I do the worst in, right? Like it's not a problem for me to have conflict with someone who I'm going to see once a year or whose relationship to me really doesn't matter all that much. It's the relationships that matter the most where I tend to do the worst. And my guess is that that's true for most of you as well. And what that means is that the, the places and the relationships where these skills are needed the most are probably relationships where you've done some damage or some damage has been done to you. And what that means this morning is that as we talk through conflict and we kind of think through that, there are probably some things that you can recall about the most recent conflict that you've had, things that you wish you'd done differently. You probably have a very well-formed opinion about what the other person should be doing in order to not be such a, a difficult person, be such a nuisance, such a gripe, such a complainer, such an avoider, such a withdrawer, whatever specific issue they tend to bring into your conflict. The key for us to keep in mind today is this. Who's the only person that you have control over when it comes to how you handle conflict? Who's the only person? It's you, right? It, it, it's you. You're the only person. So when we talk about this this morning, we have to keep in mind that handling conf conflict well ultimately requires that we start right here. So let's take a look at Acts chapter 22 this morning. And let's see how conflict plays out here with Paul and discuss what that means for us. Just as a reminder, if you weren't here when Brent uh, taught a couple weeks ago, basically what, what's happening here in this conflict is that Paul has been arrested in Jerusalem. He's got this, this mob of Jews who have come around him, and they're like, this guy, Paul, is bringing Gentiles into the temple, and, and he's teaching against Judaism, and he's teaching against the temple, and it, it just, it creates such a riot and such a, a scene that this Roman tribune, this, this Roman uh, authority in the city, he grabs Paul and has him arrested, and, and, and he's on his way to take him back to the barracks or the jail, and, and as he's doing that, Paul's like, whoa, 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 hold on just a second. Just give me a chance to talk to everybody, and so Paul gets up and asks for permission to speak. He's granted it, and he does, and, and so Paul gets up, and he talks, and everyone's listening to a point, and then he just makes everyone else even more angry. So this tribune, this poor guy, he doesn't know what to do. He's a Roman. He doesn't know what Jews are upset about. They're calling some kind of religious foul against, against Paul. The Roman tribune's like, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to beat you mercilessly until you tell me what's going on because, you know, hey, in Rome, that's what you get to do, right? Um, and then he realizes that Paul's a Roman citizen, and he's like, oh, I can't do that anymore because that would be really illegal for me to beat you mercilessly. So I don't know what to do. Hey, how about we do this? Let's all take a TV timeout. Everybody switch to decaf, and we'll get back together in the morning, and we'll just figure out what's going on here, okay? So that's the scene leading up until this point, and, and that's where we'll jump in starting here in Acts chapter 22, verse 30. Uh, you can read along with me there, or I'll have it up on the screen. So it says this says, but on the next day, so this is the next day after this, this scene, 
that, uh, that happened with Paul and, and the Jews, desiring to know the real reason why he, Paul, was being accused by the Jews, he, that's the tribune, unbound him and commanded the chief priests and the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. Have you ever been in a situation where you walk in the door and you all of a sudden know that something's about to, to go down? I remember as a kid, um, one of the things that, uh, that I would often get into conflict with about my parents was they would say, don't stay out too late. So as a 16-year-old with a driver's license, that means it's Friday night and midnight is not too late for me. But for my parents, they were thinking it was more like 945. Except that was never communicated. So I just kind of casually walked in at, at midnight and my parents are sitting there on the edge of the couch in the pitch dark looking at me. Do you have something to say for yourself? Well, I was going to say you're the best parents in the world and I love you a lot, but I'm guessing that's not what you want to hear right now, right? No, like we have those kinds of situations or in our marriage, your, your wife or your husband can look at you and say, what do you have to say for yourself? Well, I was going to say you look like you lost about five pounds, but that's probably not what you want to hear right now, right? There's this tense situation that, that you see here where there's been this 24-hour period of just brewing emotion and frustration and anger by this mob of Jews and this tribune has thrown his hands up. It's like, I don't know what to do. And so he brings him down and you, you have this guy, Paul, sitting before this council of people who are irate with him and what he is about to say is going to determine the course of that conversation. And what I want us to see, starting in verse 1, is this. Take a look at verse 1. Paul says, it says, And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now notice two things. One, notice the respect that Paul shows for them. It would be really easy because he's been told to give an account for the reason why he is in trouble, why he's in conflict, why what's happening. It would have been really easy for Paul to do something other than say brothers, which is a term of respect. He could have attacked him and been like, you want to know why I'm here? It's because these yahoos haven't read the Bible that they claim that they know for you know, for years and years and years, they're a bunch of hypocrites. They're a bunch of liars. They're a bunch of, of heathens who don't know God. I don't know why I'm here. But I can tell you this, your prison beds are really uncomfortable. I don't like this. This isn't fair. I should not be here. And there would be some truth to that. He could say, I'm being treated unjustly. He could rail on them. He could attack them. He could critique them. But instead of doing that, Paul says, brothers. And then notice the second thing. He approaches the situation and he makes it about him and what he's done. I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. He makes it about him and what he's done and not about them. So the first thing I want us to see this morning is this. Point number one is that healthy conflict starts by looking at self first, then others. You're like, tell me something I don't already know, right? If we all rocked at this, we wouldn't have to talk about it, okay? So what do I mean by that? James um, chapter 4 verses 1 through 2 says this. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions 
Your desires are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Church, the root cause of conflict comes when our desires are not being met. When our desires are not being met. You want something, you don't get it, you get frustrated by it, and then you react. It could be that you want respect, it could be that you want security or love, it could be that you want your preferences to be honored, it could be that you want a raise, it could be that you want comfort. I mean, fill in the blank. Someone or something is preventing you from getting what it is that you want. Now, when that happens, you can do one of two things. You can do one of two things when that happens. The first thing, the healthy response, is where you take inventory inside yourself and you go, you know, is there something that's clouding my judgment here? Because I'm feeling this tension well up inside me. Is there something going on here that's clouding my judgment? Am I viewing this the wrong way? Am I being selfish here? Am I about to open up my mouth and respond out of frustration or anger and maybe I just need to take a minute to clear my head first? What is it that I really want? This is where most people, including myself, struggle. Because when conflict happens, most of us are conditioned to do one of two things. We're conditioned to either lash out and attack or we're conditioned to withdraw and escape. Right? Both are unhealthy responses. One just looks a little more sinful than the other. But there's a healthier option in the middle where we come together and we work on dialogue. But that requires that looking at yourself first and seeing if you're approaching or responding to conflict from a selfish or unhealthy spot. But that also requires looking at others as well. I've, I, in, in reading and just kind of thinking through, through conflict, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of discussion out there. I'm, I'm sure you have probably heard it before. Like, you know, you really just have to start with yourself. Look in your own heart. Make sure that you don't have a log in your eye. But the reality is conflict is a two-way street, right? Like, you don't have, I mean, outside of figuring out which Netflix show you want to watch by yourself while you sit on the couch in the dark, like, most of you don't have conflict with yourself beyond what's going on in here, Right? Conflict, significant conflict, takes place between two people. So, so it requires us looking at others as well. No matter what, the first response you should always have in conflict is to start by looking at yourself, but you have to be aware of who else is a part of the conflict with you or else you're going to blow it. If you don't pay attention to who else is a part of the conflict, you're going to blow it. Most of us in conflict become about self-preservation, Self-defense, self-vindication, self-fill-in-the-blank, whatever that is for you. But conflict is a two-way street, right? Paul here looks at these men in the council intently. He starts with himself. He says, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up until this day. But you think that Paul was unaware of who he was talking to? Of course he wasn't unaware. He knew exactly what would happen if he botched that situation. He was aware of the fact that I'm standing up and I'm having conflict with a group of very powerful men who can snap their fingers and send me to be executed or make my life very, very difficult. And so in the midst of opening up his mouth to have conflict, Paul was aware of the fact not only that he needed to begin with himself, but he was aware of who it is that he was in conflict with. 
Church, too often we fall into the trap of only looking at ourselves and forgetting about the other party. In the midst of conflict, we want to vindicate ourselves. We want to get our issues out on the table. We want to defend our position, our stance, our frustration. And we forget the fact that there's a person on the other end of the conversation who matters. How would conflict in your marriage change if you approach conflict with the mentality that said, I want to talk to you about this problem, and when it's done, I want you to feel respected. I want to respond to the criticism that you just gave me, and I want us to be okay afterward. I want to work through this argument, and I want to be really quick to admit where I've made mistakes and need to apologize. Because when you have that kind of a mentality, you're ultimately saying, there's an issue here that that I need to bring up and I need to address. But I want to make sure that by the time that we're done with this, the relationship is better. And I can't do that if I'm not thinking about you and how you feel and how you matter and how you're going to respond to what we're about to discuss. You see, this isn't always going to be the case, but in most situations, the person you're having conflict with is someone you care about. And if you can just zoom out and see two people who have a problem to work through that both want a good resolution in the end, and if you can start by looking at yourself first in that process, then you can immediately end up starting to have much healthier and much better conflict. Now, if someone is abusive or really unhealthy, this may not be possible. And it may be be worth going to get professional help in this process. But for the majority of us, um, the kinds of things that we deal with at home on a regular basis, these are very simple, practical things that we can immediately do to begin seeing healthy conflict take place. Now, before we give too much credit to Paul here, let's not forget the fact that he's a human being, as are we. And uh, let's keep reading and we'll see what happens. Because even though Paul started off well, he looked at himself, he considered who he was talking to, things are about to go south real quick. So let's take a look at verses 2 through 5 and, uh, and read there. So Paul has just finished saying, Brothers, I live my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And it says, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. What does that mean? Second thing I want us to see this morning is this, that healthy conflict is sustained by apologizing and working toward dialogue. So no sooner had Paul finished saying that his conscience was clean before God than he got sucker punched in the mouth. Now, I don't know about you, but in those kinds of situations, and I haven't been sucker punched in the mouth much, at least not since high school, but um, those are not times where uh, the Jesus in me tends to come out, okay? And I'm guessing that when you get proverbially sucker punched in the mouth, that's not usually when the Jesus in you comes out either, right? So we shouldn't be surprised that Paul in his flesh does the same thing here. Uh, He gets sucker punched in the mouth and then the teeth come out. And he looks at the high priest and he's just like, you think it's cool to hit me, bro? God's going to rain down fire on your behind. 
I'm serious. I've seen better judging at a dog show. You're a liar. You're a hypocrite. You eat bacon in private and like it. So he's upset. He's angry. I get it. Point is, everything was civil until it wasn't, right? And that happens in our conflict, right? Everything is civil until it isn't. And when that happens, Paul had a choice to make, and we have a choice to make. Once again, take a deep breath, look at oneself, look at the person that you're in conflict with, and respond well, or bring out the guns. And Paul brought out the guns. Look, we've all had moments like Paul. Someone says or does something that makes you angry or is unfair or attacks you or someone approaches you and says, hey, you may not realize this, but you did this over here and that offended me or that hurt me or that was wrong. And when that happens, that's my personal favorite time to be like, oh yeah, you want me to tell you about who's doing stuff wrong? I've got a whole laundry list of you, suck up, brace yourself, right? You want to talk about my garbage? All right. I can, I, can, I can meet you line item for line item. Let's tango. Let's do this, right? So when that happens, there's this, this part of us where our adrenaline kicks in. You know this, right? Like your adrenaline click kicks in. Your eyes laser focus. You feel the hair on the back of your neck. Man, if you've got a lot of hair back there, some on your shoulders, your back as well, starts to stand up a little bit. Your brain gets on high alert. Your face begins to flush. You feel all those choice words that have been cleansed by the blood of the lamb, starting to roll back down your tongue, and the other ones come back up, and you're ready to lay into someone, right? And in that moment, you can choose to pause and respond well, or lose it and get angry and backbite and get defensive and get stubborn, or whatever your pet sin of choice is. When we don't respond well to conflict, or when we've done something wrong and, and someone else approaches us in conflict or in what could be a conflict-producing conversation and, and brings something to our attention, we can take a lesson from Paul here and do what most of us really struggle to do. Own it and apologize. Own it and apologize. To be clear, the high priest didn't apologize for what he did. The guys who were... were with the high priest, didn't apologize for what they did. But when Paul got called out for his actions and he knew that what he had done was wrong, he didn't defend himself. He didn't blame the other person for his response. He didn't wait until they owned their part of the problem. He just said, you know what? You're right. I was out of line. That wasn't right for me to do. Hey, Thanks for pointing that out to me. And you got to be careful when you say something like that because if you mix a little bit of sarcasm in there, that can go real bad real quick. Hey, thanks for pointing that out to me. Really appreciate it. That was really what I needed to hear. Not what I'm saying. Hey, thank you for pointing that out to me. I didn't realize, but I see now that was wrong. I'm really sorry. Hey, I want to apologize for blowing up at you in that conversation that we had yesterday. I was frustrated, I was angry, and I took it out on you, and that wasn't fair, and it totally ruined our ability to resolve that problem. I'm, I'm really sorry. What can we do to fix it? Hey, I, I'm sorry for that response. That was really defensive, and I'm sorry, and if I do that, that is going to 
totally interrupt our ability to work through this problem. I, I, I don't want to do that. I'm really sorry. Will you forgive me? Can, can we work on having this conversation the, the right way? In this tense situation with Paul, if he had continued to push back and sustain his argument and continue to dig his heels in because he had been wronged, he was frustrated, he was angry, it was unfair, it was unjust, he didn't like what was happening to him. If he continued to dig his heels in, this situation would have gone very badly for him. And I think if we can zoom out and think about our own relationships and our own life and, and our own experiences with conflict, most of us would probably say, you know what, Chris, yeah, when I dig my heels in in the midst of conflict, it usually doesn't turn out the way that I hope it will. I may feel like I got to say what I needed to say afterward, but I usually have to backtrack and apologize for it. And playing cleanup from the damage that was created is usually a lot more difficult and painful than if I had just stopped for a minute and been willing to say, you know what, I was wrong. I'm really sorry. So Paul, instead of pushing in further, found a way to stop and evaluate himself and apologize for his mistake without making it about the other person. Church, when we're in conflict, if we can stop the runaway train of emotion and instead work on getting to dialogue by apologizing about the problem and laying down our sword and looking at ourself and the other person, we'll begin to experience healthy conflict way more often. If you heard conflict in, in our home one of the things you would hear from time to time is that one of us would look at one another and say, I'm your best friend. Why are you fighting me? I love you. Lay down your sword. I, I, I'm not fighting you. Lay down your sword and talk to me. I'm your best friend. I, I, there's no one in the world who loves you more than me. How can we work through this? Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't, but it's always a reminder to us that, hey, if we continue to fight and butt heads and bring our swords to the table, we've already lost. We got, we've got to find a way to apologize, lay down our sword, look at ourselves and the other person, and try to work through things in a healthy way. The Proverbs are a really excellent source of wisdom for this. Um, I pulled out a few that, that I think are just really helpful for us this morning. Proverbs 18 13 says, he who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. I think when we're in the midst of conflict, part of this owning what, what, um, what we've done wrong and, and, and working toward dialogue means being able to sit back from time to time and go, you know what, I just want to listen and understand, maybe even ask questions. I want to get a fuller picture of what's the matter. And before I open up my mouth and respond, I really want to hear what you have to say. Because maybe there's something in there that before I tell you my opinion on it, I need to own and apologize for. Or maybe if I sit back and I just listen for a minute, I'll realize, you know what, there's some truth to what you're saying. We can deal with some of the stuff that isn't as truthful later, but right now you're hurt, and some of what you said is absolutely true, and I need to own that. We need to talk through that, and we need to, we need to make sure that before this conversation ends, you know that I heard exactly what you said. Um, Proverbs 15, 1, um, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. It's really easy in conflict to match tone and offense with the same. But if we can become a people who sit back and go, okay, I want to own what I've done wrong and I want to work toward dialogue, 
can sit back and say, you know what? I feel like responding this way, but a gentle answer is going to take what could be a very tense and anger-filled situation and turn it in a completely different direction. Last one is uh, Proverbs 10, 19. It says, where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Now, husbands, you don't get to look at this and go, that means I don't have to say anything because then nobody can get angry at me, right? Not that I have any personal experience with that. Um, The reality is, if you're careful and thoughtful about what you say before you say it, most of the time it's going to work out much better than if you're like, I have some very choice words that I'm now going to communicate to you very clearly one after the other. Starting here. Boom. Right? He who restrains his lips is wise. And the more that we go on and on and on in the conflict, um, the more often we can get into the trap of defensiveness and outbursts, and we end up creating a really messy situation. So the third thing I want us to see this morning is this. So we're talking about healthy conflict, is that healthy conflict is aided by finding common ground. What I, what I mean by that is this. We'll take a look at, at verse 6 here in just a second. So Paul, Paul is in this conflict. He's expressed his frustration. He's apologized for it. Here's the crucial moment in, in a lot of our conversations. When things have gotten bad, what does it look like to have a resolution that looks like moving forward in a healthy way? And I think that's what we're going to see here starting in verse 6. It says, now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them, from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. I think what's so fascinating about Paul here and his wisdom is that he looks at those that he's experiencing conflict with and he perceives, hey, there's a way for me to find common ground with this group so that I can get a favorable outcome for myself. So what Paul does is he looks at the group and he goes, okay, I'm, I'm a Pharisee, I'm a smart guy. Part of the people here are Pharisees. Part of the people here are Jews. Half this group believes in the resurrection. Half this group doesn't believe in the resurrection. And so what does Paul do? He immediately gets up and he says, hey, Pharisees, guess what? I'm one of you. My dad was one of you. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. My family is just like you. I understand exactly where you're coming from. And guess what? The reason that I'm here is because I've been proclaiming hope and resurrection from the dead. Now what Paul knew, because he's a smart guy, is that the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't like Paul and wanted him to shut up. But more than that, the Pharisees wanted to argue against the Sadducees. So he just stirred up the pot a little bit and then sat back and watched it burn. Like, all right, y'all are angry at each other. Cool, right? No, what Paul did 
is a principle that I think will help us as we understand conflict, right? He appealed to what the Pharisees wanted, and he found an ally. What ended up happening here? The Pharisees started getting up and saying, maybe this guy actually knows what he's talking about. Maybe an angel spoke to him. I don't see any problem with Paul. Why are we holding this guy here? I mean, let this guy go free. I'm sure he has important stuff that he can go and do. He ended up finding common ground and tapped into a core desire that all of a sudden got these people saying, you know what, you're one of us. You want the same thing that I do. You and I are on the same page. And all of a sudden, he's got people on his side instead of fighting against him. Can I let you in on a little secret, church? Most of the time, you and the person you're in conflict with want the same thing. Do you understand that? How many of you actually think that your spouse wants an unhappy marriage where you both feel unloved, unheard, and unsafe? Like they wake up in the morning and they go, that sounds like a good marriage. I'd like that. That sounds good for the next 30 years. Like I'd love to get up at my 50th anniversary and have my my kids go, I don't know how mom and dad made it work. They basically woke up every morning and decided they really wanted to dislike each other. You know, I guess they're just more stubborn than the other one. They've made it work for 50 years. Like, no, none of you in your marriage is married to someone, nor do you want to have an unhappy marriage. You don't. Your kids, they don't want a relationship with you that's filled with frustration and anger and nitpicking and exasperation any more than you do. Your boss, your coworkers don't want to show up to work and feel like they have to show up and begrudgingly do their jobs. The people that you respect in positions of authority that you care about don't want you to dislike them and they don't want to feel like you're undermining them. I mean, this could go on and on and on and on. The relationships that we're in that matter the most, we typically want the same thing. And what happens in conflict is we begin to say, the only way that I'm going to get what I want is to take care of myself because I feel unsafe, I feel unheard, I feel unloved, I feel disrespected, so I'm going to make sure that I get that for myself. And we usually do it at the expense of the other person who's sitting there in their mind going, I want the same thing. Most of the time, conflict is born out of someone caring for the relationship and wanting some aspect of it to get better. And when we understand, church, that we're in relationships where we all have a similar goal, we can stop viewing the people that we're in conflict with as enemies, and instead we can work on finding the common ground that makes us into allies for mutual benefit and purpose. Conflict isn't about winning or finding out who's to blame, but it's about figuring out how to make a win for the relationship. It's about trying to find a way to make a win for a relationship. Because at the end of whatever issue brought you to the table, my guess is both you and the person on the other side want to walk away from it and feel like the relationship is better. Maybe because there's an issue that's preventing it from being as good as it can be, or there's a sin issue that has to be addressed, or there's a problem that has to be dealt with, But the only reason we're dealing with that problem and not ignoring it is because we don't want it to exist because we want the good relationship that this thing is preventing us from having. So if we can stop looking at conflict and going, I'm going to fight you and start saying, I'm going to fight for us and our relationship, we can begin to experience healthy conflict by finding common ground, remembering 
that the person that we're in conflict with usually wants the same exact thing that we do. The final thing is this. Healthy conflict looks to Jesus to make all things right. We're not going to read it for the sake of time, but basically the rest of this chapter is going to show us how after this council meeting, once Paul is locked back up in jail, the Jews get together and they come up with a plot to ambush and kill Paul. Fortunately for Paul, his nephew hears about the plot, goes to Paul in the barracks and says, hey, just FYI, they're going to ask you to come back tomorrow and in the route, there's going to be a bunch of guys who come out of the back alley and shank you. Just heads up, you know. Don't want you to be surprised by that. Paul says, okay, hey, nephew, go report this to the tribune. And, um, and so the nephew goes and reports it to the tribune. Unbeknownst to Paul, okay, at this point he doesn't know what's going to happen. Doesn't know whether he's going to be led to the council again the next day and get ambushed. But unbeknownst to Paul, the tribune hears this report and he gathers 470 soldiers, that's not an overreaction, and brings them to the prison to escort Paul and um, his uh, companions to Caesarea so he can be tried there instead of in Jerusalem. So why do I tell you that? Because while Paul was innocent of the things that he was being accused of here, he was not free. He wasn't free. No real justice had taken place for him at this point. There was a lot of uncertainty about the road ahead. I mean, said the following night the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. I'm assuming following night, if I understand English correctly, is he goes and he has this experience, and then the next night, Jesus shows up to him and says, hey, take courage. What happened here in Jerusalem may have been bad, but don't forget, I've got a mission ahead for you in Rome. What about those 24 hours where Paul is sitting around going, what is going to happen to me? I mean, literally, things have gotten so violent that Roman soldiers have had to grab me and throw me in prison twice now. Am I going to die here? So Paul experienced this conflict, but it's not like things got better right away. They didn't. But he knew that the Lord had shown up to him and told him to take courage. And for Paul, that was enough. That was enough because despite his circumstances, he knew that ultimately the Lord would make things right in the end. And even though he didn't know it, we see in the rest of this chapter that there were events and things taking place behind the scenes that the Lord was ultimately orchestrating to make a bad situation for Paul into something better. And church, that's our hope as followers of Jesus this morning. That at the end of the day, we would know that even when things don't go right here, there is going to be a day that comes when Jesus makes all things right. Even though we should try to live at peace with all people so much as it depends on us, there are going to be times where that doesn't happen. There are going to be times where we're treated unfairly. There are going to be times where we are misunderstood. Our marriages, our relationships with our kids, with parents, with friends or coworkers won't be harmonious. They'll be filled with tension and there won't be a quick resolution to them. We will try to handle conflict well and things will go south. It's just the reality of life. But we can take comfort in knowing that we don't have to fight our battles here as though the outcome matters more than what Jesus will ultimately do for us one day. That if we don't get justice or fairness now, if we don't fight and make sure that we get our way, that there's zero hope for things to be made right someday. We can look to the Lord as the one who understands what it means to be treated unfairly or to want peace or to want reconciliation and experience suffering and a huge life-altering payment in order to procure it. 
to have to lay down one's life or pride or ego or position or, or place to pursue rightness with others. We can also take comfort in knowing that, that just as was happening here with Paul, the Lord is working behind the scenes in some of our situations, in our lives, in our conflict to do something that we may not see for years to come. But he's still at work to bring about something good for us. My hope for us as believers this morning is this and then we're done. I believe as Christians, we should be the best at conflict. I believe we should be the best at conflict. Because there's no greater deficit owed in existence in the world than the deficit that we owed to God because of our sin. And we've seen our Father lovingly come in and cover over our wrongs. So we've seen and experienced the most gracious act of forgiveness that any sin could ever receive. And as a result, we should be the best at conflict as a result. Sadly, we know that that doesn't always happen. But if we can commit to being a people that looks to the Lord to help us, to be quick to apologize and to forgive others as Christ forgave us and to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry, then we can all grow in this area. And that in turn will help our marriages and our relationships make much of Jesus because both in their goodness and in their badness, they will show redemption and hope. Maybe a first step for some of you this morning is to start by looking at yourself and go, you know, there are a lot of things that I probably should own that I haven't, and I need to start there. That's a really good place for me to start this morning. For some of you, it may be that you've been withholding forgiveness for way longer than you should have, and that's a good place for you to start. But I hope for all of us this morning, wherever we start, our desire, our hope would be that we would say, yes, we want to grow in this area. We want to be people who do conflict well as friends, as spouses, and as a church. Let's pray. King Jesus, Paul would go from here and he would end up in Rome. And you would use his time in Rome to create an unbelievable wave of influence for the gospel. He couldn't have known in the midst of that conflict, in the midst of the difficulty that he experienced, the goodness and the mercy and the kindness that you would extend to him over the years to come. And he had no idea of seeing how faithfully you would work. Lord, would you help us to be people who understand that conflict is going to happen, but how we respond to it is something that we can change. And that because we believe in your truth and in your promises, we can have hope that you will show your faithfulness and your kindness to us as we attempt and try with all of the power that Jesus gives us to respond well and to operate as people who own and apologize when we've done wrong, who extend forgiveness graciously, and who fiercely love one another and are committed to finding a common good, even in the midst of our conflict. Lord, we thank you that you love us and that in our sin toward you, you didn't choose to withhold forgiveness, but you sought us out first and desired to make all things right. And that as a result, we get to experience the joy and the hope of knowing Jesus as our Savior and our risen King. Lord, we come to worship you now in response to that truth. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.